But it's just, it's sort of nice to have something that you, and, and maybe for parents out there, especially uh, your listeners who are stay-at-home parents, to be able to do something from start to finish in a linear fashion <laughs> without having kids interrupt uh, is just, is really, it's nice. It's nice to have that outlet both um, creatively and financially too. It's nice to have something that like, okay, even though this isn't that much money, it helps me to feel like, wow, I, you know, I am contributing. That's funny. When you think about it in terms of what is personal finance, I'm going to tell you, the women actually are really interested in the personal finance because I can tell you to all my mom friends, they're going to tell you the best place where they can buy diapers. They know when it, when one place costs 11 cents and then one place costs 17 cents and when there's sales on this and that. So it's not that women aren't interested in personal finance. They might not be talking about it at the same level, though. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. So Millionaires and Build Podcast, this is episode number 253. I just want to thank all those that have reached out, emailed, Facebook, all sorts of different uh, social channels. Uh, thanking Clark and, and encouraging you know, me and, and, and kind of the future of the podcast. Obviously super excited for, for what will come. We still have several interviews uh, to come that we're super excited about. So thanks, thank you to all of our listeners who have reached out. One email that came in a few weeks ago uh, asked us to to address a couple topics and so i'm going to address those right now one is the implication i guess from some of the things that we've said on the podcast or between various guests that most millionaires don't pay off their homes and i, I think the best way to address this is one we do have a lot of this data and we can go look at it uh, you know, kind of in a nice spreadsheet percentages and whatnot. And I've had, a, we've had several people actually write in asking for stuff like this. And at some point we, we, we will do something with it. I don't know yet exactly what we're going to do, whether we'll put it in a book or whether we'll put it in a nice little, you know, concrete, you know, one pager or what. Um, but I think that, I think the thing to note here is one, the millionaires that we've had on the show, it has been, quite shocking to see how many have not paid off their home comparatively because I think there's a there's this connotation out there that if you're a millionaire you have a paid for home and that's not always the case. I think one of the reasons for this, especially with our show, is our millionaires are skewed toward to a younger demographic, so to speak. So when we typically see millionaires that are, you know, maybe over 50 on our show, in a lot of cases, they have a paid for home. There are definitely those that have paid for homes in their 30s and 40s, but typically it's, it's been a lot, upwards of like 70% uh, that if they're under 50 and they're a millionaire, they don't have a paid for home. And, you know, we could go back and debate, you know, who's, you know, what strategy they're using, whether it's real estate and if they're going to you know, use real estate in their investment model, then they probably use that in their personal you know, model and not pay off a home and, and use that leverage there. 
I think the other thing too is, you know, for the most part, while we've done this podcast, you know, interest rates have been at historic lows. And so it hasn't been on the forefront of a lot of people's mind to pay off their home. And so I think that, you know, those two things specifically with, you know, the, the last five years that we've been doing this podcast, those things may skew some of the data a little bit. But like I said, once those, you know, millionaires get over 50, uh, in, the, in, in most cases, you see a, a quite an uptick uh, in terms of, I think it's only been a few that we've had on that are over 50 that don't have a paid for home. And I think the other thing, part of that is, you know, you got a 30-year mortgage. A lot of people might have bought it in their 30s you know, maybe late 20s. And if they had a 15 year, maybe they paid off in their, you know, mid to late 40s or 30 year, they're, you know, looking to maybe make a few extra payments and and get it done with it, you know, in their 50s. It's very rare that we've seen uh, millionaires accelerate this. Uh, And I know there's other data out there, you know, amongst some other people that have tried to to kind of create a narrative around this that say, well, the average millionaire pays it off in seven years, but that is not... uh, been what we've found uh, from our show. So this week we have Grace. She has a net worth of 1.7 million, 500k of which is at home equity. She used to work for the government, but stays home with her children now and has her own Etsy shop. Super excited for this interview. We had several people write in asking for for more women. Uh, obviously, we try to get as many uh, on on the show as we can, just to hear different voices and different perspectives. But I think you'll really enjoy this perspective. Uh, you know, she's. Deems herself the money nerd in the in the family. Husband's a developer. Last week we had Tim. He had net worth of three point eight three million, uh, spread across multiple as- asset classes, including a paid for house and a second home that he uses on Airbnb. So without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Grace. Grace, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's really exciting to talk to you guys. I've listened to a ton of the shows and um, excited to share a little bit about our story. Uh, so I am a 38-year-old homemaker. I am a mom of four, um, kids eight and under. And um, my husband's 41. He's a software developer. And uh, he is the main breadwinner and I stay home. But uh, CEO of the family, I mean, more like the CFO or the COO, because uh, sort of to quote Dave Ramsey, I'm the money nerd and always have been. And so uh, I'm the one who usually makes most of the suggestions about how we best utilize our money and leverage our money. We are faithful Catholics. And um, I just bring that up at the beginning because it's really been a constant thread throughout our financial story and the main driver of our values and our financial decisions. And then I've just always had an entrepreneurial streak, just really had an interest. And then um, it really took off when I got my first job out of college. And I thought, oh, what am I I supposed to do with this money? So uh, that's how I really started uh, investigating and and learning about finance. That's awesome. And what is your net worth today? Our net worth is about uh, 1.2, not including our house, which is worth about 500,000. So 1.2 liquid give or take, and then 1.7, including the house. Is that correct? That's right. Awesome. And how is that broken up, the 1.2? Yeah. So we have, um, I used to work for the government before I stayed home with my kids. And so um, I have a thrift savings account. And I don't know exactly how granular you want me to be. I've got about 284000 in a thrift. And then um, my husband has about 337000 in his uh, 401k 
Then we have um, Aroth for me at 244, Aroth for him at 139. Um, about 40,000 in cash, 40,000 in brokerage, uh, 26,000 in a donor advised fund. And then we have about a total of 171,000 for our four kids education. And that includes um, money for college. And we also send our kids to Catholic schools. So that also includes some money for Catholic schools for uh, K through 12. Awesome. So let's break this down a little bit because you've got quite okay. the spread here. So the money that's invested in, in the retirement accounts, is that mainly in index funds? It is. Um, and this is sort of a little bit, it's actually, it's one of those things where some people call it luck. I call it sort of providence. But when I was first looking at, okay, I have a job. What do I do with my money? I stumbled upon this article on Morningstar and I actually went and found it again so I could uh, share it with folks because it really was so pivotal for me. It's called Long term inside this guy whose name is El Toro and it's post number 60825. Um, I think it's behind a paywall for now, but um, but in that article, it was really cool. They sort of laid out how to build a solid financial foundation, understanding risk and reward and all this stuff. But one thing that they did is actually include a sample portfolio. So I and everywhere everywhere all over this document said just for an example or you know use at your own risk and i said well i don't know anything so i might as well just use this this sounds pretty good they had a, a sample portfolio of basically um 30 in s p 500 30 percent in an extended market index uh 10 in a reit 15 in international growth and then 10 um in a another international growth um, in a different market, and then 5% in international emerging markets. So I basically just bought everything <laughs> that this article recommended. And that might have been foolhardy, um, but I really was looking at the time for someone just to tell me what to do. So I, I the rest of the article is really thoughtful. Um, and I thought, you know what, it's better to just get started. And if I have to make adjustments along the way, so be it. And I have, and we have, but, um, that's really how we, how I started investing. And I just sort of followed that and stuck to it. And when did you come across that article? What year was that? I was probably about 24. So about 13, 14 years ago. Okay. I want to get into some of the adjustments you've made along the way yeah. there, but first, what's the the disparity between the two Ross? Did one start earlier than the other? Did the the one yes. strategy work out way better? <laughs> no, <laughs> since I manage both of them, they're exactly the same. Actually, an example of the difference of compound interest is um, that I started one, and and then my husband and I've been married about ten years, so we started one for him once we got married because he's just he um, he's always earned a really good income, and he's frugal but he just doesn't care about money you know there's tons of people out there like that who they might not be flashy they don't they don't spend a ton of money but they don't necessarily care about it you know the way like you guys starting a podcast about it or me you know really digging into the the weeds of a Morningstar article you know some people just don't care they they're like okay whatever you know and um and that actually can be really dangerous because um one, one thing that I probably mentioned later in mistakes is that, you know, uh, years went by. I mean, <laughs> till like maybe last year when I finally got into my husband's 401k and I realized that I think 
50% of his stuff was just sitting in bonds. I mean, that was the default allocation that they um, they did at his company, or just like some junk uh, stuff. And so we we fixed that along the way. But the difference really is that I just started earlier, and but we've both maxed it out since we've been married every year. That's uh, one of our big goals. And so that's really the difference. So, Grace, the allocation that you just mentioned yeah. that you read about, is is that the case through most of your accounts where you're able to invest that way? I know you'll probably have some restrictions in, right. in your government job and, and in the 401ks as well, but is that the, the allocation you basically follow? Yeah. Um, with my husband's stuff, just because it's harder for me to manage because it's, you know, his in his account, what I did recently is just sort of put him on a target date, but I had it be a later target date so that that makes it more aggressive. And so I've, we've, and I think one of the things we're going to do is sort of adjust that more granularly, but it was just so much better than what it was. It was just one of those baby steps towards getting it um, where you want to be. But yeah. for, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that this article that I mentioned, this Morningstar article, he was in the author just talks about, you know, going back through every year and just looking at what your asset allocation is and then just adjusting. So more or less, and I'll be honest with you, the more kids I have, the less <laughs> I just, uh, I have a ton of time to spend on, you know, asset allocation. We have more or less kept to this. And if it sort of gets out of whack, then like the next year, rather than I'll, I'll look at what's sort of low and I'll just buy that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So do you reallocate your portfolio often? No, not often. Probably if if I'm doing a good job, probably once a year. And then the raw, the, or excuse me, the, did you say you have both Roth accounts, the 401k? No, the 401k for my husband's job is just a traditional 401k, not a Roth. But that is actually mm -hmm. something we're thinking about getting into. And yours is a traditional as well? And mine is a traditional. I, I don't think, maybe, the maybe things have changed because I haven't worked for the government for about uh, eight years. But at the time, they didn't offer a Roth. It was just traditional. Gotcha. I'm not, I'm not sure if they do now. Jace, do you know? I don't know. I was just going to say, they just now got two-factor authentication and redid their website, so I have a feeling that they might be a couple <laughs> years behind. <laughs> so, right. for what that's worth. We'll talk about the Roth in 20 years or so. Yeah, right, exactly. When there's a new thing. Yeah, when they've gotten rid of it and changed it again. Right, exactly. So, let's back up here. We talked about allocation. You're at 1.7 here, if you include the home. Going back to your story, let's talk about who Grace is. How did this come to be? What's your story? Yeah, so I always had an interest in money. I um, just always thought it was really fun. I was always the banker in Monopoly. <laughs> but actually, one of my one of the stories I remember my family talks about from my childhood is that I went to Costco or Sam's Club or whatever it was, and I bought a big thing of gumballs, and at at wholesale prices. And then I went and took them to school and sold them out of my backpack <laughs> at a markup. And, um, and that was the only time I got sent to the principal's office. And I came home and told my parents about it. And my dad just said, a oh, bunch of communists. <laughs> and so they were, <laughs> they were pretty supportive of uh, my entrepreneurial spirit. And um, just, you know, always, I always sort of had a side hustle going on. So um, years ago, a friend and I, we had a business doing consignment for people. We had basically stuff that they didn't have time to sell. We'd sell that. 
for them and take a cut. Um, now I have an Etsy shop, which I really love and awesome for moms because you can really scale it up or scale it down depending on what's going on in your life. And, and for me, and not every Etsy shop is like this, but I sell digital products. So it's totally passive. So I just get a little cha-ching, you know, and make a couple bucks and it's just really delightful. So the, the side hustles, how much have they made you? Was there one that was more lucrative than other, or is it more of a hobby or both? I, I mean, I guess technically per the IRS, it's a business. It, you know, I, I would say the consignment made a few thousand bucks. Um, with Etsy, I probably make, I don't know, a thousand bucks a year or maybe a little bit more. It sort of depends. But, you know, not a ton of money. It's certainly not the main breadwinner. Um, by any stretch but it's just it's sort of nice to have something that you and and maybe for parents out there especially uh, your listeners who are stay-at-home parents to be able to do something from start to finish in a linear fashion <laughs> without having kids interrupt uh, is just is really it's nice it's nice to have that outlet both um, creatively and financially too it's nice to have something that like, okay, even though this isn't that much money, it helps me to feel like, wow, I, you know, I am contributing um, right. financially. So I think when I wrote into you guys, I said, you know, I, the way I look at my contribution to our, our family's financial life is not primarily about how much money I make, um, but it's really about um, helping to direct and, and make suggestions. And, and by no means unilaterally, my husband and I really um, talk about all of our decisions, but since he, this isn't his passion, and but I and I love it, and so I love digging into the weeds, and I love just reading the books and and um, listening to the podcast, and so I'll get super excited about something and do a ton of research and then talk to him about it, and then he's like, oh yeah, that sounds great, let's do it, and so that is sort of where I feel like <clears throat> being the person who stays home, the the main contribution is really helping us to come up with that big picture and helping us to set our course. Yeah. Grace, why are more women interested in personal finance? That's why aren't? obviously maybe a stereotype a little bit, but I, I think it probably holds true if you look across personal finance content. And obviously we've tried to get as many women as we can yeah. on the show just to share different voices, but it just seems that overall the men usually drive that more. Why? That's funny. When you think about it in terms of what is personal finance, I'm going to tell you, the women actually are really interested in the personal finance because I can tell you to all my mom friends, they're going to tell you the best place where they can buy diapers. They know when it, when one place costs 11 cents and then one place costs 17 cents and when there's sales on this and that. So it's not that women aren't interested in personal finance. They might not be talking about it at the same level, though. Um, I think that, you know, people who run a home by its very nature, it's a little business. I mean, it's a little cottage industry. And I think that um, women are very interested in the personal part of it. They know how much clothes cost for their kids. They know how long it's going to take them to buy a new car and whether or not they're going to afford to go on vacation this year. It's just that they might not be writing about it on a blog um, so it doesn't mean the interest isn't there. It just is more on the personal side of personal finance rather than I think what's interesting about it is so much of our lives now, um, it's more public fi finance. So, you know, people have a blog or a podcast and they, they talk all about it. But I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised at all if 
there's tons of people listening who, you know, the women or the wives or the moms are like, no, trust me, I make thousands of money decisions all the time. I just don't tell everybody all about it. Yeah, I agree with you there. So you go to college, I assume? Yeah, and I have a, a graduate degree also. Okay, awesome. And then you started working, and how many years did you work for before you decided to step back? Uh, well, I did um, a year of volunteer service right after college, and I actually graduated a year early from college. Uh, but then I worked for um, about eight years before I before I had our first. So let's talk about the decision of staying home and mm-hmm. and leaving the workforce, at least I don't know if you'll do it forever or temporarily or what, whatever your plans are. How was that? How did you come to that decision? And, and was that a difficult decision to make for you? Well, it helps when you don't love your job. <laughs> it makes the decision a lot easier. Um, <laughs> and that, that was my case. I'll just be honest about it. So um, I, I wasn't in love with my job. Um, we also, we were living in the, um, in a, very high cost of living area at the time um, in DC, as you probably surmise since I worked for the government. And so, you know, we were just looking at what kind of life do we want to live? And so my husband at the time was driving 50 miles one way. So there'd be days when he didn't see our daughter because she was still asleep. And then when he came home, she was already asleep. And so if I had her in daycare, it would have been 12 hour a day daycare. And it's just, it wasn't worth it. I mean, not to mention the financial side of it with, you know, I think at the time, and this was probably 10 years ago now, daycare in my building was about $2,400 a month. And the most, when I left my job, I was making, I think, I want to say 80,000, 85,000, something like that, which, you know, there is obviously a, a significant delta there. But it wasn't, it wasn't honestly even tempting this day. It just wasn't the lifestyle that we wanted to have. And so, you know, I know other people, it's more painstaking, but for us, it was a pretty easy decision. And I, I didn't give notice right away um, that I wasn't going to come back because I really wanted to test the waters. And I think that's advisable. You know, test it out. See if it's for you. It's it's not for everybody. It's by far uh, the hardest job I've ever had, if you can call it that, but also exponentially the most rewarding so grace i want to rewind just a little bit here because i think it's fairly unique given your background and the decisions that y'all have made along the way and now you know choosing to to stay home and you know run the household and and do a couple things on the side what were those early conversations like with your husband as as far as like who was going to manage the finances did you know his interest level wasn't to the the level that yours was and he was he okay with that were you okay with that can you kind of walk us through that dynamic because obviously you've been very successful with the the you know the partnership that you two have formed and i'm just curious on on how that's kind of come about yeah i think that you know like no one i always, I always tell my kids you know no one's great at something to begin with so everyone starts as a beginner and so i think that that was true for us too you know there's a lot of i'm sure there are some missteps i think that um, you know, we were in our first house after we got married and we're just, we're just spending money <laughs> hand over fist. We're like, oh, let's, let's buy this for the house. Let's buy that for the house. And, and I think this is when we were first married and I, and I got pregnant fairly, fairly soon afterwards. But, um, I think 
pretty soon we're like, okay, hey, if, if we're going to change um, to make it possible for me to stay home, um, we need to start changing how we're spending money. And so then we came up with the budget and, um, and, but right from the beginning, it, it, again, it's not that my husband is not good at money or something like that, but it's not where his interest was. And so I, I knew that at the beginning and I was fine with that in some ways, frankly, it sort of makes it easier because if you have two very strongly opinionated people, two money nerds, you know, you can really see things differently. But um, we also, I was really influenced, I should have said that too, um, really influenced by Dave Ramsey uh, when I was just looking around uh, when I was first with that first job, especially, um, he was, this sounds so ridiculous when I say it out loud, but he was the first person who said out loud, hey, you know those 30-year loans that you have? You can just pay those off. You don't have to have those for 30 years. And I said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And so, um, you know, we I we got rid of loans. We got rid of, all, you know, all our debt. Before I got married, I had paid off my grad school. Um, and I mostly paid cash for that, actually, anyway. But I had gotten rid of all my undergrad loans. And um, so, I don't know. For us, it was pretty natural. I mean, he's really good at what he does. He's an awesome software developer. Um, he works for a great company. They love him. He loves being there. And so it was just really natural. And um, I'm very opinionated. <laughs> and so it just really worked out that I had a lot of opinions on the personal finance stuff. And he he was like, okay, I would bring him an idea. And he would maybe look into a little bit. I'd give my 30-second elevator speech. And he, he trusts me. And I trust him to do the things that we're good at. And so um, that's sort of how it progressed. That's awesome. Got a little bit of the yin and the yang there. I like that's it. That's right. So I want to I want to hit on one more topic that we haven't really discussed much that, that you brought up kind of in the beginning, and that's paying for what I'm assuming is private school for your children while they're young. Is that correct? Yeah. How how do you financially plan for that, and and maybe kind of walk through the mechanics of what y'all do to 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 pay for that? Sure. Well. I guess one one thing is just the practicals of it is, you know, I look and see how much it's going to be for the year. Um, a lot of schools, including ours, offer a payment plan, which uh, is sort of funny to me because they charge you a, a service fee for the convenience of, of billing you. And so I just set up an account. I know how much it's going to be for this year. I just wrote the check and actually can get into this maybe a little bit later if you if you want out of um, our Coverdell ESA, uh, uh, education savings accounts. Um, I just paid for the kids schooling out of there. But what I do is I just, I know how much it's going to be. I have an account that's called tuition. And then I just put in, you know, for us right now, we're putting in about $1,400 a month to pay for private school. So, and then the nice thing is if you pay in full at the beginning of the year, they give you a 2% discount. So we, we just write the check or in this case, actually, this is the first year we're doing this is paying it out of the ESA. So um, Ameritrade will just send them the checks directly, but that's how we do it. Um, and actually one thing I want to add, um, I know maybe talking about things we do differently later, but one thing that has really been so helpful to us and to me, and I wish I would have done sooner, is to really automate as much as possible our finances. And so what I was just mentioning is having a 
we use Allied Bank, and I love those guys. And um, don't get paid for saying it. I've been I've been with them for I don't know 15 years. They're fantastic. But one of the things that's awesome about them is you can open up as many accounts as you want. So I probably have the world record for the number of accounts at that bank because I probably have 20 accounts there. But what I do is all of our money comes into our checking and savings account. And that's where our mortgage and our utilities get paid out of that. Then I have a bunch of different accounts for different things, including a tuition account. I have one that's called monthly, which you know, it's just regular monthly expenses. I got to buy light bulbs or something at Home Depot or something, uh, uh, fix something. Then I have one for vacation. I have one for each of my kids. Um, I also have something called a lump sum. So that's something where like Amazon Prime, I pay for it out of that. It's something I'd only pay once a year. I have one for insurance. I have one for, um, for something I call once which is like, we need a new mattress, or I should say, I want a new mattress. I have a mattress I'm sleeping on. I would like a new one, but rather than just go out and buy that, I save money for it. I have money that goes into that account every week. It's 50 bucks. And when I get enough money, and then I have a separate little, tiny little list in my phone. I just have a to buy that are somewhere you know, like a mattress or a, a, a Sono speaker or an, a new comforter for bed, things that aren't really needs, they're wants. But so I just keep a list. I have money that goes into there. When I have enough money, I decide what I want to buy from there. Um, and so I just mentioned that because that has been so helpful. I can just pull up that Ally app and I see exactly how much money is in every single one of those accounts. And then when I want to buy something, I don't feel any guilt. I just buy it. I can buy it because I know I have the money saved. And and so we have stopped budgeting. This is our budget. It's just if the money's there, then you can buy it. And so that's how we do the tuition. And sorry, it's sort of a long-winded way to come back to that question. But I know exactly how far I am to, to hitting my goal. I have a name on the account that says how much I need to save. So I can just say, okay, I need to save $16,000. We're at... 5,000. So maybe if my husband gets a bonus, maybe we put an extra thousand in there. But it's just been a really nice way to at a glance see exactly where we are with our goals. Do you invest the money that's in those covered LESA accounts? Yes. Yeah. And the nice thing about them, I don't know how familiar folks are with them, but there is, I think they used to be called Roth education accounts. So they are basically, you can put anything you want in there. And actually one of the things I like about them is their flexibility and you can pay for just a whole host of things out of them. The only downside to them is that their limits are low. They're only $2,000 per year per person. And that includes, I think, maybe similar to 529, um, it's anybody. So if my parents wanted to put 50 bucks in, well then I can, or you know, 500 bucks in, then I can only put in 1500 per child. So you started those accounts bef- when the kids were born, basically? That's right. And then you just contributed a, a chunk to there every year, and then you just kind of try to keep whatever's going to be set aside for tuition to the point where eventually those are going to be used for college as well? Right. So we have ESAs, for three of our kids, and then when they changed the tax laws, I just decided to do uh, only the 529s because they can now pay for five, um, K through 12. And in our state, you get uh, a $4,000 state deduction for contributions per child. But actually, um, now that I'm thinking about it and, and just 
just sort of based on some changes we're making right now, I'm going to go back to funding those as well, if I can, because I like the flexibility. I mean, you're just not going to find more flexibility when it comes to saving for education, because in our state's plan is great, but it's you're not picking individual assets or securities or ETFs or what have you. You are picking, say, aggressive or S&P, whatever. I mean, with the ESA, it's very granular. It's to the point where you're picking in, you could have individual stocks in there if you want. So I think I really appreciate that flexibility. Yeah. So so you mentioned, Grace, $1,200 per month per kid. Is that right for the cost? No, 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 no. We save about 1400 in all. Mind you, our our youngest is a baby, so um, she's not in school yet. So we're not saving yet for, for her school. Oh, sorry. I misunderstood. So how much is the private school? I just... Let's see. My my third child is starting preschool and that is 2800 and then my older two are in in elementary school and theirs together was about a little over 10,000. That's for the year. For the year. For for both of them together. There is a discount too if you have more than one child enrolled at the same time. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. And then you'll do that through high school? Is that right or just Yeah, well, we'll see how things Different. go. <laughs> Get a little bit of that sticker shock because, you know, even living in the Midwest, I'm looking at the all girls Catholic high school. And right now it's about 15,000 a year. So, I mean, and I, I did the math. We're really looking. It's, it's a big commitment. I mean, we're really looking at about a million dollars in paying for our kids' education. But my husband and I are both Catholic school educated. We, It's really important to us. It's a big part of our lives and a big part of our values. And so it's worth it to us to spend the money there. Yeah. So let's shift gears here a little bit. We talked briefly about this before we started the recording, but impact investing, and I know there's a, a few other names for it, and it's a conversation we haven't had a lot on this show. So tell us your thoughts about that and, and maybe how that's affected your allocation recently. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I was saying to you guys in the beginning, it, just recently I was listening to a podcast that was not about investing, but one of the things they talked about is, hey, do you know what your 401k or your uh, portfolio is actually invested in? And so especially for us as Catholics, there are particular issues or, or I should say, financial areas that just don't um, meld with what we believe in. So I um, I was telling you, there's this website you can go to that's called inspireinsight.com. And it's bent is more on the conservative side, but what you can do is you can toggle through and select the values that you want. And so I went on there and I, I started, you know, putting in our, our different things that we owned. And I was just really unpleasantly surprised surprise, the number of things that just really went against our values, things like pornography, strip clubs, what else, abortifacients, like just a lot of things that we would never spend our money on, but here we are profiting from. And so it's just been one of these, I don't want to say crisis moments, not, not to that point, but Definitely, I see it as a turning point. And actually, it was interesting 
happened because I had written to you guys a couple months ago and then, you know, um, time passed and this happened sort of during that time. So this is not what I thought I would necessarily be talking about with you guys, but this is our reality right now. And so, um, <laughs> yeah. And so there's also another website that I would say that's really useful too. It's called ETFDB, like database. And you can go on there and you can do the same sort of thing and toggle for different ESGs, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance Investing. And there's a lot of different names for it. And I'll be honest with you, you know, when I work for the government, it's not that I didn't know that these other types of things were available because I'm not going to let myself off the hook like that, because honestly, I did. But I only was presented with these three options working for the government. It was you have the C fund or the S fund or the I fund or the G fund. And that was it. And so, and I did do some research in, in terms of what was sort of morally acceptable. And since those were the only ones that were available, you know, it, it was, it was okay. But, you know, all these years later, I don't need to keep my money there. And I, and I probably won't. I, I'm probably going to roll, roll my money out of the TSP so I can have more control over what we invest in. And because the reality is, and, you know, not to sound sanctimonious or overly positive, but at the end of the day, like, I don't, I don't really want to be, have our money involved with, you know, selling cigarettes to kids or, or whatever. And, and not that there's a company that's uh, devoted to doing just that, I hope, who knows, right, but, um, <laughs> but it's sort of like, you know, I would never, one of those charities that we love and we support um, is this great, this great group called International Justice Mission. And basically what they do is get people out of slavery. And, and we just had something come in the mail talking about these kids in Ghana who are, are enslaved and working on these fishing boats and they drown untangling these nets. And it's like, oh, it's just heartbreaking. And then you realize, I look at my portfolio and I realize, wow, could it be that something I'm investing in is contributing to that? And at the end of the day, our money isn't neutral. It's not. And so, and this isn't something for us. And, and I only, and I want to, I'm happy to share our story because I, you know, I have profited off of, of all these things and I, I won't deny it. And so, but now I'm at a point where I'm like, you know what, now's the time to make some changes. And so hopefully someone listening to this, at least go and look, just go and look, even if you don't make any changes, it's sort of like after the holidays and you, you don't want to get on the scale. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't want to read it and weep. You, you feel it in your pants. You know, you know, it's not going to be good, but it's sort of the same sort of thing. It's like, well, just go and look, see what you're invested in and see if that lines up with your values. And, you know, we're Catholic and, and I know not everyone listening to your show is, but it was, it was just so eye-opening for us to, to look and see and realize, wow, okay, this is not where our values are. And there's a lot of ways you can make money. And it doesn't have to be in things that you don't value. There are other ways to do it. And so, so one of the things that is actually really exciting um, for me is that part of the reason when I was working for the government and starting that first Roth is like most of the funds that were these value-based funds were pretty crappy. I mean, honest with you, the, I mean, they were bloated. You have fees that were, I don't know, you know, one and a half, two percent, the performance 
experience was mediocre. And so that's why I think a lot of people didn't invest there. And so one thing that's exciting for me is that since the rise in popularity of index funds, I think that the world has really taken notice because people do want to put their money where their mouth is. And so those folks that I've mentioned, the Inspire folks, they have a line of values-based index funds. And also a, a group called Global X has, for, for me, a specifically a Catholic one, which basically it's called a C-A-T-H. And what they do is it's the S&P 500. And then they just screen out about 20% of ones that um, violate uh, the socially responsible investing guidelines that the United States Catholic bishops put out. So there's a some guidelines about nuclear weapons, um, what else, abortifacients, uh, you know, sort of typical Catholic social issues. And so, so they actually now have passively managed funds because now you don't have to sacrifice good returns with with what your values are so i just i think that's an awesome innovation i'm really excited about it so is the expense ratio and the fees higher on those they are a little bit higher but they're not like choke worthy i mean so i i looked it up for cath in particular 0.29 and there's a screen for weaponry child labor abortifacients pornography another one is called um bible that's with a different group um and they use a sort of different metric called Biblically Responsible Investing, or BRI, B-I-B-L, and that is 0.54. So, and you know what? Here's the thing. It is work to go through and screen. So I'm okay with paying them to do that work. That is a good, I think that's a good value. You know, for me not to have to weed through 500 companies or whoever, or 5,000 companies, if you're looking at, you know, sort of the total stock market, that is well worth it to me. Yeah. Yeah, you'll pay for it. Right. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I think it's something that we haven't talked a lot about on the show. Maybe this is the first time we have. So appreciate you bringing it up. I think it's an interesting conversation to have. And, and while you were explaining that, I was looking up a couple of my own uh, index or mutual funds that I have, and it kind of gives you a score on the environment and different certain different issues. So it is interesting to see just to look it up. If, if anything, I, I was curious just to see. So thanks for bringing it up. We're running a little short on time here, but I know you have some financial goals and also some great mistakes and advice. So let's start with the goals first. What are your your goals, financial goals? You kind of have them broken out here, short, medium, and long-term. Yeah. So thanks. And thanks for just having me on because it's really given me reason to think about these things a little bit more in depth. Short is we're hoping to pay off our house in the next, uh, this calendar year, or maybe for tax reasons, um, start of next year in January. Um, after that, we are interested, well, along the way, we want to increase our giving every year. So if we can do maybe 1% better every year, I think that'd be awesome. That's just really important to us. And then um, we're also interested in getting into short-term real estate. <laughs> it's just, I mean, part of it is just we're excited about the idea of having a place where our family can go and sort of make those memories um, and being able to donate time there, maybe to friends or family who wouldn't be able to afford a vacation or something like that. So that's something that we're interested in. But we do not want to go back down the mortgage route. We want to pay cash. So this will probably be at least five to 10 years. Um, Though I guess if um, housing prices cool off, who knows, maybe it'd be a little bit sooner than that. And then um, in terms of a number, 
Uh, I just was calculating this last night, and this was sort of a useful website I found called Smart Asset. And you can sort of have now, see how much you're going to contribute annually, what return you expect, and then how for how long. And so just using the idea of that 4% rule, if we could get to about $2.5 million in investable assets, not counting the stuff for our kids and not counting our house, stuff that we could actually live on. The goal there would be about 2.5 million and at 10%, that would be in about eight years. So those are sort of our, our near-term goals. Okay, awesome. Well, good for you. And I mean, you guys have obviously been you know, very wildly successful here, 1.7 million. So congrats on that and, and four kids as well. So just wrapping up here, what are your general mistakes, any mistakes you've made or general advice that you'd give? I, I thought a good sentence you wrote in on you said money is a wonderful servant and a cruel master, and you have to make sure your priorities are in order so as not to become a slave to it. So maybe just touch on that and then any any last words of advice you give to somebody listening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's really true because for those of us who are interested in this, it can really it can really grip your heart, you know, and just sort of what I was talking about earlier um, about recognizing that our investments weren't actually lined up with our values at the end of the day you know it wasn't it wasn't worth making a buck at, at the expense of of our values and so i think that you have to be prudential you need to not you should know about it but it can't be the only thing you talk about the only thing you care about it can't be at the expense of the thing that money is supposed to serve which is you know for us glorifying god for doing good for others for taking care of our family and and being generous in our community and and bringing good into the world it can't just be about that one bottom line, how much money you have. So I think that in terms of advice, it's know what your values are and yours might not be the same as mine, but know what yours are and line your money up with that. Um, live a consistent life. You know, your money isn't in one in one quadrant and then the rest of your life somewhere else. It, it's all together. It's all mixed together. And then I would say, you know, developing good systems, sort of what I was talking about earlier, naming all of your money, I think is really uh, know what it's there for. And then um, just lastly, just be generous. Be generous. Even if you, you know, when I first, I will say this, I wish that I would have done this differently. I was such, I was so cheap when I was making $35,000 a year when my first job. I just, I, you know, I'm looking, oh, look at me. I'm giving a hundred hundred dollars to charity this month like look how generous I am and you know what I feel like I have grown so much in that area and be generous not just because it'll come back to you because I, I do think it does but because be generous because of the type of person you're going to become and so I would say you know it is awesome, financial freedom, all that stuff. And I am, we have been blessed beyond my wildest dreams and financially, and I am so grateful for that. And so, you know, I wanna be a blessing to others and I wanna really use our money, use our money well. Awesome. Awesome. Great, great words of advice to wrap up with. So thanks again, Grace Networth of 1.7. Congratulations on you and your family's success. And thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much, guys. God bless you. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, Grace. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.